Welcome to Melanated Stamps. Melanated Stamps, a podcast highlighting and showcasing the stories of black and brown global chocolates. She traveled with some high school students to Europe, and she's going to tell you all about her experience being black and or melanated abroad. And also, she's going to talk about um, her role as an ESL teacher, English as second language teacher, and how her global travels has impacted her view of the world. So this is a great interview, so buckle up and let's get to it. When you were 14, um, and did you notice that you were the only black girl or did, when did you have that realization? And then when you were 14, was that important to you? Um, so before this trip, um, we had to do like these monthly meetings, um, where we'd all get together and, and just kind of just get to know each other learn the rules of this travel company, um, learn more about Australia and New Zealand before we got there. And it was pretty apparent, like from the moment that I walked in the room that I was the only one there. Mm. Um, and this is coming from, you know, I grew up in, um, a part of Denver. That's really, um, a large, uh, population of, of people of color, you know, between Hispanics and, and Latinos and, and, um, blacks and, you know, I was just, that was all I knew. Mm. Um, so when I, when I walked in this room and it was me and, and my best friend was, I was so excited cause he actually got to be part of this, this, um, trip as well. So we were the only kids of color. He's Hispanic and I'm, I'm black. So, um, that was, uh, we kind of leaned on each other. Um, mm. but, but I, it didn't really, it didn't really bother me too much. Like it wasn't a huge deal because, um, I didn't, don't fit in a, to a stereotypical ideal of what like a black kid is. Um, and even that's changed so much over the past, you know, I'm 32. <laughs> that's how many, many years since then, like what black means is complete, like has changed. So, um, I'm, I'm, it wasn't a big deal to me in the moment. I didn't really, it didn't really um, affect the way that I interacted with anybody or affected the way that I um, experienced the trip at all. That's cool. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. That's one thing that I am always um, wondering about, especially with young people is how, like their racial identity or their ethnic identity is shaped in places where like when they're out of their home environment, it can be 
challenging at times. Um, and it's not just in the international scene, but um, everywhere where you are the only black or brown kid. Um, yeah, but I've yeah. been on plenty of trips. Mm, yeah, the majority of them where I'm, I'm the only one. Yes. And yeah, it, it's, um, it's an interesting dynamic to be the, to be the only one. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I, I, at the time I, I think I was just so excited about going to Australia, um, that I didn't care. And (laughs) as I've gotten older, I've become way more comfortable in my own skin that, um, that me not caring is really just a part of my identity now. Like, um, and me seeing, um, I don't care if I'm the only, only person of color in the room. Um, it doesn't, it's not, and I'll make jokes about it, um, to let people know like, yes, I realize I'm the only one here. I don't care. I'm going to joke about it. Um, and let you guys know that I, I'm not upset about being the only black person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, um, I think, you know, our experiences in Colorado were very different because you were, you were one, you were raised in Colorado. I wasn't, but then when I was in Denver, I was in very, very, very white spaces. And then you, you were like, yeah, I grew up in Colorado and I was around lots of people of color. And just when you were saying that, I was like, what Colorado? What Denver is this? But it, yeah, you were in the opposite. You were on the, well, side, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, right near the airport is um, where the airport is now, <laughs> where it was when we were. When we were super little, it was, I mean, it was still, uh, you know, the Park Hill area and, and Stapleton is, was very, um, African-American centric. Like that was the, you know, five points is, is near there, George Washington high school and, and kind of the, the central hub of black culture was right there. Um, and then moved out to the Montbello area and, um, that's where I grew up and it wasn't until high school when I, when I went to high school and I was no longer in those, um, black spaces, my high school was predominantly white. I think I was one of 10 black kids in my graduating class out of 112. Whoa. Oh my gosh. And I could be wrong on that number, but I feel like that's about 10, 15 was about the the number of black kids in my graduating class. Um, And then I went to CSU and when I was there, it's a, it's a college of 32,000 students. And I was there when there were maybe 800 black kids, people who identified as African-American. So from the time I was, you know, 14 to when I graduated college, I was in predominantly white spaces. And that's when I started to notice it more because then I'm in situations, you know, you're in situations where you're learning about American history and you're learning about black culture and who do they look to when they're talking about slavery or you're reading Huck Finn and the N word pops up. It's like, let's all look at Shelby. And I'm like, 
Why the F are you looking at me? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm trying to learn this ish too. <laughs> oh, to be the only one. And then you get all the questions. Like you're the expert and the spokesperson for the entire race of the whole world. It's so of helpful. Course. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to do that to white people too. Like, so I was reading Shakespeare and I know you know every word because you're white. <laughs> So can you explain to me all of the sonnets because you're white? Because I'm trying to learn this. Like, that's what they're asking. And I'm like, this is, like, you don't know. So quit looking at me. It's not cool. Yes. You you can ask me anything and everything about Harry Potter, but don't try and just come at me with random African-American history because that doesn't, and in in a shameful thing, that doesn't necessarily mean I know it. There's exactly. tons of things I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, we, we weren't taught black history the way that we were taught white history. And then we all have complexes in our 30s and 20s. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So fun. Okay. Well, we'll get back to the um, mm, the racial piece in a little bit. Um, let's talk about uh, where you've been. So you talked about um, Australia and New Zealand when you were 14 and 15. Where Where else have you been? Um, when I've been to Mexico and the touristy spots in Mexico, so I've been to uh, Cancun and, and, uh, Cozumel. Um, I did a cruise in the spring. My husband and I took a cruise with his parents, his dad and his stepmom. And we went to Mazatlan, um, Puerto Vallarta and Cabo. Um, yeah. Uh, and those are fun. I like going to Mexico because, a, I think Spanish is the most beautiful language um, to be spoken. Um, I just love the I love the way that sounds, and I love the the meanings of the words and the deeper like it just sounds cool. And um, I um, my my all my students currently at the school I'm at now, um, every single one of them speaks Spanish, and. Um, of my group. So uh, because I teach English language learners, my group of kiddos are Spanish. So Spanish speakers, not necessarily all of them from Mexico. I have had a couple from um, Honduras and um, you know, just, I love going to visit Mexico because I get to see a little bit more of my students' culture and be immersed in just the beauty that is the Mexican culture and the Mexican experience. Um, But in a touristy way, like you, you can only see so much of it from Puerto Vallarta when you're like looking at all the the people and their stupid selfie sticks and fanny packs walking around trying to take pictures of statues and and like I w- I really would love to just go into the heart of the city where like the real like where mi- real Mexico is going on yeah real life is happening not the tourist life. Um, mm-hmm. but I still loved it. Like it was, it's still a really cool cultural experience to be in, in the cities and, and seeing people's day-to-day lives and just and Mexico is so beautiful too. Um, I the Cabo was probably my favorite, um, of the, of the places that we visited on this cruise because, um, so we, we got off the ship and we got onto another little dinghy that took us to, into the port because the cruise ship was too big to go into port. So we had to dock off the port. 
And then we, my husband loves fishing. This is his favorite thing to do. And I told him on this trip, I didn't, I, and he loves snorkeling. And uh, I told him on this trip that I didn't want to go snorkeling. I have a phobia of water near my nose. I'm not very comfortable around it. So I said, I don't want to go snorkeling. Right. I want to sit on a beach somewhere with my Kindle and I want to read. I want to do nothing. I want to get more brown. I just want to read. And the beaches on Cabo, like we, we got into, we had to pay a little taxi who did, we did this little tour around the, the natural rock formations um, in Cabo. And then they took us to a little beach and dropped us off within these rock formations. And we were, I was there for like three and a half, four hours. And I sat my ass on the beach and I read for those four hours. (laughs) I got more brown as the day went on. My husband got to snorkel. But like sitting there and listening to um, the natives (laughs) <laughs> they set up a really great like little shop. They these guys pulled up in their own little boat with with food and drink, and they were selling it out of the boat. I'm like, oh look at this racket! Y'all is making the money. Yes, literally making money. Yes, because mm-hmm. they're selling these sodas for like 300 times their price. So they are in the city. It's like, well, where else you gonna get it? You want this? You want right? <laughs> you're going to pay me my $5 or five, five pesos to get this Sprite. I'm like, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. You. Yeah. And just ingenuity. So like Cabo, like though Mexico is my favorite. Um, uh, on the, on the North American side of things. Um, I have a question. Um, that I visited and then, um, I have a question for you. Um, the okay, so you talked about your students are Mexican or from Honduras, from that area of the world, and that they're Spanish speakers. So when you go to Mexico and you are connected with their culture, how does that experience impact your um, teaching and your relationship building with your students? Um, it impacts it a lot because I feel like when I come, I come back and, you know, I show the kids some pictures that I took, um, of my trip. Um, and I talked about the things that I seen and saw and the things that I, I learned in the, um, t- talked about in the story of, of speaking Spanish to the, to the water taxi guy. And he thinking I was just, I was Mexican and just continued to speak to me in Spanish the entire time. And I was like, um, <laughs> I gave you the extent of my Spanish, dude. <laughs> um, but they were, they really, they really liked it. And I think a lot of that too is I'm, I'm always asking them about, um, their culture and what's important to them. And, you know, when the, when we talk about the the you know a lot of my students actually were from Puerto Vallarta, so I would say, oh yeah, we were Puerto Vallarta, and like, oh that's where I'm from, and blah blah blah. And I'm like, oh cool, like tell me more, I want to know more, and wow. um, I just and I that's really they I feel like that and the fact that I love Spanish and I I'm like y'all can speak Spanish whenever you want, like 
as long as we're not doing direct English instruction right now, if you guys are talking to yourself, to each other in Spanish, go for it. Cause I just like listening to them speak Spanish. Um, I think, I think that that helps in the fact that I'm so into Spanish culture and wanting to learn more about it and, mm-hmm. and make those connections. It has really helped build those relationships. Um, mm-hmm. Not just with my students, but with their parents, too. Oh, really? Do you have an example of that? Um, So a few of my, um, one of my students, he drives me up the wall, but he's a teenage boy. So, you know, it's a given. His mother was in our school as a custodian. Um, and she's a wonderful woman. I love her to death. She's, she doesn't speak a ton of, of English, but um my willingness to to a speak to her in the little spanish i know and then ask her questions about her family and her life in spanish she comes to me and asks me questions about how to say things um where to go to do something like she really seeks me out and i don't feel that if i hadn't had this experience of going to mexico and experiencing the, at least the touristy Mexican culture that I would have been comfortable enough to bridge that, to make that bridge um, and build that relationship with this parent. Like I, um, I'm nowhere near fluent in Spanish, not at all. Like I know that you're, you've got your degree and you can speak Spanish fluently or whatever, but like, I can't. <laughs> and so, when I, and I always tell my students of like, guys, my cousin is in China right now. I don't know why she's in China because she can speak Spanish. <laughs> like I don't understand why she's <laughs> why she's not in, in Spain teaching kids people how to speak English. She's in You're China, right. but whatever. <laughs> but I have this this. I feel like I have a better connection with my parent, my my students' parents because I'm I'm. I am interested in culture and their culture and learning more about them and um, wanting to build, build that relationship, especially in the part of the, the state that I'm working. It's a very red state, red district, meaning there are lots of Trump supporters. Yeah. And um, the, there were stories about even in my, in my, or the school I worked at before, after he was elected, like my students were terrified. Um, yeah. Their parents were going to get deported. Or, and, mm-hmm. and I like just, I feel like I'm kind of like the, the light for them in that um, here's someone who does not care that I was born in Mexico, does not care that um, my parents, you know, are not American citizens or here on a work visa or whatever. She just mm-hmm. is treating me like a human being and letting me be me um, and speaking my native language and, you know, trying, learning more about me. Like I'm not just a, a number in her classroom, like a person. So um, I don't think, I don't, I think it would have happened to an extent just because of who I am as like my personality. Um, but I don't think it would have been as, um, honest as it is because I've been to Mexico. Oh, I love it. Um, how do you, how do you broach conversations or do you broach conversations with people who have the negative rhetoric about like border crossers or people who are moving here, transitioning, 
um, given that you have gone to where they are coming from? Have you had any um, talk with people? I haven't had any direct confrontations with people about it. Um, I, I, I don't post stuff about it on Facebook because I, I want that space to be my happy space. And there's so much negativity on it already that I'm like, I, I need at least one area of my life where I can <laughs> just share pictures of my children and my cat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, Great. yeah and it is, um, I have had conversations with people about it and, um, I feel like they've been open to what I've had to say. Um, but for the major- majority of a, the majority of my coworkers have are, if they are for building the quote unquote wall or whatever, they don't bring that to school. Mm. Um, and they don't, um, like, th- they don't treat my Spanish-speaking students, my dual-language students, any differently than they treat the native speakers um, mm, when it comes to to doing their work. One thing, because my position within the school is brand new, so one mm. thing that I've really pushed for, especially with my students who um, are brand new to the country and speak little to no English, is letting them letting them use their native language to explain concepts and not um, punishing them essentially for being unable to produce uh, curriculum and content in English mm-hmm. because they can completely understand this math concept, but they don't have the words to explain it in English. But they could probably explain it to you in Spanish. So if you have them write it out in Spanish. Myself or any of our other, we have a couple other people in the building who speak Spanish, can help you translate it. Like, don't punish them and mark them off for something that they have they don't have control over. Because it takes seven years to become fluent in another language. Um, uh-huh. At least, so a lot of my a lot of my kids are not going to be. I say a lot. Uh, a few of my kids, I have two students off the top of my head who started school last August having moved to the United States a week before school started, they knew mm. no English. They oh. will not, one is, one is a seventh grader, one was a ninth grader. They will not be fluent by the time they graduate high school. Mm-hmm. But they will have a better understanding and better grasp of English than they did when they came into the country. Mm-hmm. So my teachers are really great about like, okay, yeah. And coming to me and asking me, how do I help these kids? So um, I haven't really had a lot of, of arguments or dialogue with, um, with others. The one thing I do like really battle, um, and I am a huge advocate for is when my, st- I told my students, if anyone tells them they're not allowed to speak Spanish at school to come find me and I'll go and rip that person apart because the United States does not have a national language. They're allowed to speak Spanish whenever they damn well please. So uh, I, that's the one thing that makes me more upset than anything is when someone tells um, one of my students that they can't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
that makes me so happy um, to hear um, people in places of influence who are advocating for those who don't have their influence yet. Um, and yeah. in the education system, it's such a vulnerable space for learners. And then on top of the just regular vulnerability of not knowing something that you're learning, you have a language barrier. It's so intense. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, actually, you know, the crazy thing is the one person I did get into like an actual argument uh, um, with about my students' abilities to speak their native language and be able to do the content in a classroom was someone who was an English language learner themselves. And why is it always like that? I just don't understand. It was, she, she was from Brazil. She came to the country when she was in her twenties. She spoke five different languages already. And, and she like had the, um, the really great opportunity of learning languages as an adult where that's all she had to focus on. So we had a lots and lots of arguments about, no, these kids are allowed to do their work in Spanish. Mm-hmm. By the end of the year, we want them to be able to produce at least a little bit of it in English. But if they're, but right now they just got here. They're still learning the English alphabet. That letter K is really difficult because it's not in the Spanish language. Like it's not a natural sound. So we like, or, and even there's so many letters um, or numbers <laughs> or just remembering the different um, names for things, being able to ask to go to the bathroom. Those are things that they need to know right this second. They don't need to know Pythagorean theor- theorem and how to explain it in English right this second. Because if they have to pee, like that's not the important thing. So that crazy thing is like that is the one time that I've really got into like a heated argument about about it, and it's with someone who was who was a language learner themselves. Uh, the audacity! Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody got time for it. <laughs> yes. All right. So. Uh, We talked about Mexico and we talked about your career and how you connect them, which I absolutely love. Um, I'm so glad to hear how you are leveraging all of those pieces to be an advocate. Um, Where else have you been? Um, I have family in Canada. Um, Like, our Aunt Karen lives in Toronto, but I have not been to Toronto yet. Oh, we haven't even mentioned. You're my cousin. We haven't even said this yet. I'm so sorry. I said it earlier. It's fine. Really? Just do it. Yeah. It's uh, fine. It's fine, Maya. It's fine. You don't have to accept me as your cousin. Whatever. One of your 150,000 cousins. Oh, we have so many. It's outrageous. So, so many. <laughs> okay. Um, so, like, we were, I was teaching my um, Chinese students, and um, one of my favorite things to do was to talk about the family tree. And over here, it's obnoxious. And so like over here, because of the one child policy, their families are super small. So they're like, do you have a brother or sister? And they're like, yes, I have one sister. And then I'm like, great. Do you have aunts and uncles? And they're like, yes, I have one aunt. I have one uncle. And I'm like, that's great. And then they're like, and I was like, so do you know what a cousin is? And they're like, 
uh, no. So I explained to them that it's like your aunts, children, and they're like, oh, okay, great. And I was like, well, how many cousins do you have? And I, or, and they're like, um, two. I have two cousins. And I'm like, and then they ask me, how many cousins do you have? And I'm like, oh, wow. Um, let me spend 15 minutes of this class drawing you what my family looks like. <laughs> it's outrageous. And then their eyes get bigger and bigger. And they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm, and then I'm like, I, I don't know how many cousins I have, actually. Um, I, I, when, I did the, when I did the family tree, I um I pulled up the the re- the big reunion picture from Denver when we had the reunion in Denver and we were outside at City Park and this was like a week after Tucker was born and all of us are standing in this field and I think there's like a hundred people there between yes. like all the cousins and then like um I don't think all of the um original like I don't think all of the the still living kids were there. Um, but like there was, I showed them that picture and I'm like, you see this, this is my family. (laughs) Do I know everybody's name? No, no, I do not. But they are my cousins. (laughs) Yes. It's amazing. Oh gosh. Yes. For the cousins. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So Mexico, where else have you been? So my husband has family in Canada. So, uh, you know, I've been to British Columbia. Um, Really, it's just North Washington. Like, there's really no difference there. Um, But in June uh, June this year, I had the opportunity to take students um, from my school on a 10-day trip of Europe. So we went to Austria, Germany, um, Liechtenstein for a hot minute, and then Switzerland. Wow. Yeah. And that, that was that was a fun trip because it was a last minute trip. And I was channeling my inner Janaea with this trip because <laughs> it was like 30 days. I had 30 days to prepare for it, um, for this trip oh. that these kids had been preparing for for a year. Um what? so yeah. Um, it was with another edu- uh, school educational group tour, and the original teacher who had planned and booked the trip um, decided the last minute she was moving back to Texas. And she said, I can't do this trip anymore, but these kids have all paid. So she sent out a mass email to everyone in the building and was like, hey, is there anyone here who would like to go on this trip? Um, and I, you know, raised my hand. I'm like, hello, my name is Shelby. I'd like to go. <laughs> I was like, I don't even care. Like, I will totally do this. Ten days in Europe? I've always wanted to go to Europe. Yes. So um, I did that. Here's the, okay. So the day that I agreed to um, go on this trip, I came home and my house was on fire. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So we had a very small fire in our basement um it did um it my husband's a saltwater fish tank enthusiast um so it did more damage to us fish tanks than than anything else but that put a damper on me being able to go on the trip so i was like i apologize right away like i don't think i could do it we just had this fire i don't have the money for it and this company went back it's like you know what because it's the last minute we're gonna cover all your expenses so i got a 10-day trip to europe 
for free. I'm what? so jealous. Wow. I just had to cover one meal a day and any other like um, souvenir stuff that I wanted to get. Uh, yes. I just I'm so jealous. That's incredible. It, it was so much fun. I had such a great time and I only, I took three kids so I didn't have a lot of other like people to worry about. And uh-huh. the group we, t- we toured with a group from Detroit and I say that, and you would think there'd be a lot of people of color in this group from Detroit. No. And then we travel with a group from Texas. Again, all white. What? <laughs> um, I think in the Detroit, the Detroit group, I believe there were two students. I believe they were of Indian descent, but I am not 100% sure. Um, but, but yeah, the rest of them are all white. So it's just little me, brown me sitting in the back, like, hello. Wow. <laughs> what was trapped. the ethnicity of the kids that you took? They were white. They were white as well. Okay. But, um, and it was interesting with them because they're not my, they weren't in any of my classes that I taught. Um <laughs> I do teach other things aside from ELL. <laughs> I do interact with the rest of the school population, but um, they weren't in any of my classes. So um, I didn't know them very well, mm-hmm. but man, talk about a bonding experience um, uh-huh. with kids. So I absolutely loved, loved this trip. Um, mm-hmm. So much, in fact, that I've already planned the next international school trip. So, you know. <laughs> uh, I am in love. I'm not over. to get the kids out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. First um, so what were some of your think- thoughts as you were packing and getting ready for your trip? Did you, are you a so, light packer? Did you pack everything? No. So, so when I, when I traveled to Australia, I had a big old suitcase. I folded everything. I was like, ah, this is amazing. I'm going to Australia. But I was also there for 21 days. And I didn't really have access to, like, laundry facilities. Uh So I felt like I had to pack more. For this trip, I packed one pair of shorts, (laughs) 10 days worth worth of underwear, and, like, five shirts. Because I was like, A, I'm going to be sitting on a bus a lot. If my stuff gets dirty, I'll just wash it in the sink and hang it to dry in the bathroom. Um, I packed in my suitcase. I didn't check a bag when we flew. Yes. I packed everything in my carry-on. But in my carry-on, I packed a duffel bag so that on the way back, I could check a bag of souvenirs and dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. So I rolled up my duffel bag. I rolled up all my shirts. I rolled up all my underwear and I fit everything into it was the size of a messenger bag, like carry on. It, it's not. Um, I, and then I had a backpack. I had my backpack and I put all of my, like my medications and stuff in there. Um, and my umbrella and my Kindle. Cause I was not leaving the country without my books. Um, and like my charge cords and everything, but my backpack wasn't even that full. And wow. I could have packed more clothes in my backpack. I had tons of extra room in my backpack, but I was like, um, no, I think this is good. Now I've got more room for souvenirs. So this works. 
<laughs> ah, that's amazing. Did you bring a lot of stuff back with you? Um, no. Um, so like I brought, I brought keychains and stuff. That was the number one, um, requested item, um, for souvenirs. Um, while we were in, um, while we were in Austria, we had the opportunity to see the Neuschwanstein castle. And that's the castle that Disney based Cinderella's castle off of. Oh, yes. And you know how much I love Cinderella. So I bought two posters of the Neuschwanstein Castle. Um, and the other, and I bought um, the German version of the first Harry Potter book. Oh. So one of the things that I, like one of my hobbies is I collect the first book and I want to own the first book in every language that it's been translated into. It's been translated into like 73 different languages. Yeah. Um, so while I was in Germany, I was like, I'm buying it in German. So y'all better yeah. look out for books. Um, uh, I love it. And then the other things I spent my money on was food and beer. Like I was, I'm in Austria, in freaking Germany and I'm going to be drinking beer. You have to. You yeah. Have to drink the beer. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. Oh man, I love it. <laughs> That's so cool. Tell me about um, some of your experiences um, being a non-white person abroad. You can choose which country. Uh, what What are some of your thoughts? So the the weirdest thing for me being non non-white person abroad. Well, not necessarily weird. Okay, there are two things that I experienced that I that stick out to me. So the first thing is um, when I would speak to people, or if, if unless I spoke to someone first, and say we're like in a, a store or just on the street or you know anywhere, if, unless I spoke to that person first, they would automatically start speaking to me in German. But really? if I were with one of my students they would automatically start speaking to them in English. And that just blew my mind. I could not figure out what was going on, like why that was happening. So I I made a a post about this on Facebook. I just, I commented on it. And my dad's older brother, his wife is from Germany. She's a naturalized American citizen. So she hates it when I say she's German because she's American. Um, But she's from Germany. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) When I got back, I, I had gone to visit her and my co- my cousins on um, from him, and she said, you know, I didn't want to put this on Facebook, but the reason why that they would speak to you in German is because there are so many military kids mm-hmm. where you have an American dad and a German mom, and those kids, you know, more than likely it's a black dad, white mom situation. Those kids are mixed. So the the black a large portion of the the black population in Germany are mixed kids who speak German. So they all just assume that I'm um, a mixed kid speaking German in Germany. I thought that was fascinating. Whoa! And it was so cool. I was like, I'm not Ger-. like I when I was buying my Harry Potter book. Obviously, it's in German. I'm in a, I'm in um, I'm in Vienna. I'm not Vienna. We went to Salzburg, which is where they filmed The Sound of Music. 
thank you very much. So I was in that. I was like 150 yards away from where they did the fountain scene and the sound of music in this little bookshop. I have my German copy of Harry Potter. I'm at the counter and this, the, the, um, the clerk asked me something in German and I gave her a bl- the blankest stare. I was like, I have no clue what you just said. And she immediately switched. She said, would you like a bag? <laughs> oh no. Like how much is the bag? And she said, it's 10 cents or 10. Yeah. 10 cents. I said, no, that's all right. I can just carry it. It's fine. <laughs> but like, that was just one wow. thing I experienced in every store. Unless I spoke to someone first, they always spoke to me in German first. And wow. that was so cool. Um, yeah, that was cool. And I was like, damn, maybe I need to learn German too. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other cool thing that I saw that really made my heart happy were the number of African-Americans and people of color I saw as tourists in, oh. in the country. And it's not like, you know, sometimes when you're the only one, you tend to like look for people like who look like you like just make sure like oh there's one hi guy i have a story about canada with that exact thing um but in um one day we were in we went to dachau when we were in munich and there was a black family there you know touring and, and learning about dachau and i just was like i thought to our great grandfather and his parents and i was like Great Papa was the son of slaves and he did not have these opportunities. And here I am in Germany learning about um, other cultures. Like it was just that. And it was the catalyst of that was seeing this family um, mm-hmm. walking around and, you know, or we'd be in the city centers and there were black families walking around touring. I'm like, look at how far we've come where we can go and, and experience something outside of our country. Like that was, that was cool. Really cool for me. Oh, that's amazing. Um, did, were you approached by other people of color also, or did you do the approaching when, when you were there uh-huh. and also your other experiences? I didn't, I didn't approach anyone in Europe. Um, a lot of that was because I was with my students and I wanted to make sure, like, I really was trying to focus on where they were and that they weren't getting kidnapped. Mm, that's important. Um, yeah, we're in foreign country and I did not want to end up on Dateline. Um, mm. So um, I didn't really approach anybody, but I think, you know, we you do the general, like, smile and nod, recognize kind of thing like I didn't go out out of my way to talk to anybody no one really went out of their way to approach me um in Europe um it was just but it was there was an acknowledgement of their presence and existence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, um you also wanted to talk about like racial ambiguity so like what did you what does that mean to you and do you do you have a new perspective on the ambiguity part now that you've been abroad. Um, how does that impact your life in Denver? Yeah. Tell me about so, this. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm, I identify as a mixed race. I, my mom is white. My dad is black. Like that's just who I am. 
Um, but with that comes um, a sense of people not knowing my race just by looking at me. Um, so, like, I, I, I've been asked before in the United States. I've never been asked this outside of the States. Just in the States, I've been asked if I was Mexican. Um, I've been asked if I was Samoan. I've been asked if I was Native. Um, and I'm like, no, I'm Black. Like, I'm, the, the melanin in my skin is from Africa. <laughs> um, so... Yes. Um, it just, that's like my racial ambiguity, um, experiences within the state. But then I go to the four, these other countries and there's more of an acceptance, like in Mexico, when the, the water taxi guy immediately started speaking to me in Spanish and he automatically assumed I was like a native Spanish speaker, at least fluent enough. I don't know if he thought I was Mexican. He might have. Um, but in that moment I felt like, okay, he's looking at me and seeing me as a person, not of an other, but someone like him Mm. and who's going to immediately start communicating with, with me in a way that he's comfortable, which I appreciated. I love when that happens. And then again, in Germany, when, and you know, unless I spoke to them first, they automatically assumed I was German and I was just a black German person. Um, but I wasn't looked at any differently once I once they discovered I was just a regular English speaking American taking up space. Like they were just, they were still really, really friendly and really um, like awesome, amazing, but it's, it just opens my eyes to just how differently, um, people of color are treated in the United States versus how they're treated abroad. Uh, and I know that experience may be different in other places. Like I know you've had a uh, different experience as a person of color in, in China versus when you've gone to like India and stuff. So literally um, anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Literally. <laughs> um, so it, it's just, it, it's, more interesting to me because in in the U.S. I'm always seen as other. They they uh, their people cannot purposely check a box and say, "Oh, she's she's black." Well, she's also white. Um, and I have this like I've had this since I was in the third grade where I've been aware of it. So that was the first year. I switched schools and when my mom and I went to go register me at my new school in third grade, they wouldn't let her mark both black and white in the registration box for a race. Uh. They told her you can only choose one. And here's my white mom standing next to her very obviously not white child. And like, but she's both. And my mom like went off on these poor office ladies who were just doing their job. (laughs) And she looked at me as an eight-year-old and said, okay, what do you want to be today? What do you want to be this year? Black or white? Wow. And at eight, I thought about it. I'm like, no, let's be white this year. And we marked white. And then the next year when we did registration, we marked black. And we alternated back and forth every year. Because my, it made my mom so mad that they were forcing me to pick one. 
Wow. And she has always been someone to be like, no, she is both. We are not pigeonholing her into something when she, she, and I've always identified as both. Like, that's just, um, that's just how I feel. Um, I'm not more black or more white than anything else. I'm the perfect mixture of both. Um, my, and my husband is white. So my children genetically are only a quarter black. Uh Um, and my youngest looks Hispanic. Uh Like he, his, just his, he has more facial features like I do. Um, his skin tone is, is more brown than his brother's. Um, but you put him in the sun and he comes back and he looks like he just got here from Mexico. Like he looks Mexican. <laughs> um, there's my oldest son. He burns and he turns red. <laughs> he looks just like his father. Wow. <laughs> so, like our little racially ambiguous family. And my, my oldest put it the perfect way. He calls himself French toast. Mm. And I'm cinnamon. He just like, mommy, you're cinnamon and I'm French toast. I'm like, that is beautiful and I love it. And we're just going to go with that. We're so that. it's a, yeah, it's really interesting having that experience in the, in the States, the place that I call home where I'm forced to choose. Um, but when I go abroad and this was even the case in Australia. And I remember this too, like we did when at 14, I'm still like, in awe of seeing the Sydney Opera House in person on my birthday that talk about a great birthday present. That was the best birthday present ever. And then going to like um, a presentation um, on Aboriginal culture and feeling like the Aboriginal people look at me and are like, Hey Brown, what's up? Um, Like I remember feeling that acceptance from them as a person of color um, in, in that situation. Um, even in in Europe being accepted like just assumed that I was German and spoke to me in German like that kind of stuff was really um, really fascinating to experience um, and something that I really value Uh, now that you have come back from a place that was um, not toxic for people of color like how has that changed your daily life or has it changed your daily life and daily thinking when you interact with white folks? Like, do you think about that or do you experience or feel some kind of way or no? It might just not really, not really. And I think that a large part of that goes, just goes to the white folks that I'm around. Um, and that I'm like, I, I don't care if you like me or not. Like at the end of the day, your opinion of me is not going to keep me up at night. Um, <laughs> I've, I've moved past that point in my life where that's uh, an issue. Um, so like when I was, you know, high schooler, yeah, I, that kind of stuff did, but I'm 32 now I'm married. I've got kids. I'm home. Um, I, you know, own my own cars. Like I'm a, a functioning adult. So if you as an another another adult don't like me, okay, 
<laughs> and if you don't like me because of the color of my skin, that says more about you than it does about me. So I'm just going to keep on smiling and treating you like a human being because I respect you as a human being. But we're not going to the movies on Saturday. We are not sitting together and watching The Lion King. There will be no um, Akuna Matata between the two of us. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm not. I'm also not going to go out of my way to like. I'm not going to say anything negative about you. I'm not going to do that kind of stuff because that's just not the person I am. We'll just, yeah. So if, if, uh, and I haven't had many people where as an adult, I've only had maybe two or three people who have tried that sort of stuff with me. And at, at the end of the day, I feel like my, um, my life, is a lot better because I just removed them from it. Like, I don't, I don't need that kind of toxicity in my life. I don't need that kind of judgment in my life. Uh, as adults, we should be able to treat each other like adults. Um, and whether you like me for the color of my skin or not, like I have my master's and I'm thinking about getting my doctorate. Like nothing you can say is going to stop me. <laughs> right. That's preaching right there. Oh, that makes me so happy. Okay, so my last question is, um, do you have, like, advice you would like to give to an audience of five people or 500? Like, do you, or do you have, like, a soapbox thing that you, you, like, want everybody to think about or the thing that makes that you're really passionate about that you want people to know? Um, so... My, my biggest thing is just being who you are and being unashamedly who you are. Okay. Like if you love, um, like for me, perfect. I'm going to use myself as an example. Um, I love Harry Potter and I have found a way to work Harry Potter into my life in a way that makes me happy. And that gives me joy. And uh, I don't let the fact that this story was written for children deter me for the fact that it's my story. Like, I, I'm taking ownership over it, and I've taken ownership into what it means to me. Um, and it makes me happy. So, like, be unashamedly the thing that makes you happy. If that's going out and doing goat yoga, go out and do goat yoga. If that's um, running 5K marathons, then run marathons. Do the thing that makes you happy. And if that's traveling the world, which I believe that is what makes you happy, my dear cousin, then go forth and travel the world and do it unashamedly. Like no one can, t no one can stop you from doing the things that you want to do unless you allow them to stop you. That's so, um, true. so just. Do you boo and be happy? <laughs> ah, yes. That's, that's the thing I'm passionate about is let people be who they are meant to be. And as long as I tell my children every day that I don't care what they do, as long as they're not murdering people or being mean, as long as they're happy, I'm happy. Like as long as I don't have to visit them in jail, if they want to be, um, I don't know, every, every job is 
valuable. Um, so when I say this, I'm not saying it as like putting down on these professions, but if my kids want to be a garbage man and that makes them happy, they can be a garbage man and I will love them nonetheless. If my child wants to be a lawyer and spend years and years and years in school because that makes him happy, I will love him nonetheless. If my child wants to live in a tent in, in the wilderness, um, we might have a conversation, but I still will love you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's my soapbox. That's a trip. Thank you so much for joining me with Melanie Stamps today. I have enjoyed being able to bring to you another brilliant person who has traveled abroad, has survived, and has a story to tell. So please share this uh, episode with your people. Listen and subscribe to Melanated Stamps. Please, please, please follow me on Melanated Stamps um, on Instagram. I'm posting pictures of my life in China and um, keeping people updated on like what it's like to be living in these coronavirus times. Um, thanks once again to Shelby. You're amazing. Bless you. Enjoy your afternoon. All right, guys. Bye.